0: Good evening, I would like to welcome you all to the first Academy Discourse this evening. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Academy Discourses, I am Mary Canning, I am the President of the Royal Irish Academy. Also present with us this evening are Professor Pat Shannon, who is the Academy Secretary, uh, Professor Stephen Gardner, who is the Academy Treasurer, and our Executive Secretary, Dr. Tony Gaynor and before we begin, we do have some short academy business to undertake. Um, As per the academy regulations, I wish quickly to read to you the minutes of the last um, discourse, which was chaired by Professor Michael Peter Kennedy. Uh, we had 10 members and 120 guests present at that. And the minutes read as follows. The president welcomed members and guests to the meeting and thanked the sponsors, Mason Hayes and Curran. The minutes of the discourse, reflections on the role of a learned academy with the president, Professor Michael Peter Kennedy were signed. The president then invited Philip Lane, a member of the Royal Irish Academy and Alan Barrett, also member of the Royal Irish Academy, to present their discourse. Questions were invited from the audience. The president thanked the speakers for an interesting discussion and invited the audience to a wine reception. The president then closed the meeting. The Academy then adjourned. May I ask the members here present this evening in a virtual capacity, if I may sign the minutes of the meeting of the 13th of February 2020, please raise your hand or nod if you approve. The minute book will be signed by me as soon as we get back to normal business in Academy House. That concludes Academy business for this evening, and thank you for your attendance to your attention to that. I would now like to. Uh, introduce the first discourse of our academy for this season and also i think probably our first online uh, virtual discourse tonight our special guests are with us for a discourse on the u.s election Uh, we are being joined by desmond king who is an honorary member of the royal irish academy by Carlin Lillington, by David O'Sullivan, by Robert Schmull, and in the chair, we have Anya Lola. Unfortunately, due to the format constraints, there won't be the usual question and answer session this evening. But if you do wish to submit comments, please do so by using the chat feature, which you will find on YouTube, and we will endeavor to respond. I now invite Anya to begin our event.
1: Uh, Well, hello, I'm Onya Lawler, and I'd like to thank the Academy for um, organising this discussion of what's certainly the most fascinating um, American election in my lifetime. And that's probably true for all of our participants and uh, those of you who'd be watching this. I really am pleased to have such a fantastic panel, uh, which I'm going to introduce to you now. who are going to talk about uh, all of this and what's at stake with us today. So we're joined by Desmond King, who's Andrew W Mellon Professor of American Government at Oxford University in the UK. Carlin Lillington is in Gray, Dublin, here with me, although we're socially distant as well. She's Irish Times journalist and technology columnist. David O'Sullivan was the EU ambassador to Washington from 2014 to 19, and he's joining us from Brussels. And from the US, we're joined by Professor Bob Shmoo, from the University of Notre Dame, where he's Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism. And luckily for us in RTE, Bob is also a regular contributor on American politics uh, and things electoral uh, on Morning Ireland on our radio show there. And Bob, uh, I'm going to give you the first question, given where we are at this moment in time. Uh, We have Joe Biden with an average lead heading into the Republican convention uh, of nearly 7.6 points nationally. He's got significant leads outside the margin of error in Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida. But you're writing about the Democrats and the fact that they've got this 52-year jinx uh, with a vice presidential losing streak uh, in elections. So what are your assessment uh, at this stage of the odds for Joe Biden?
2: I think at this point, uh, one has to say that uh, he has a lead uh, and that it's a fairly sure lead. And what makes it interesting, it's so unlike 2016, when you had a candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, who had a a very negative uh, approval rating. Uh, Joe Biden does not. And uh, four years ago, Donald Trump made hay on on her standing. Uh, But I think we have to look uh, or take the longer view in all this. And that is, as you mentioned, um, Democratic vice presidents uh, don't do very well. Uh, If you look and study it closely, a Democratic vice president has not won the White House on his own and without being president uh, since 1836. And I think it raises questions about how people perceive a uh, vice president Uh, The most recent ones who lost, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale, uh, Al Gore. Um, But Joe Biden could be different because, as you pointed out in your introduction, this is an election like no other that's occurred in American history. Um, Donald Trump is unprecedented. Uh, Let's say that straight out and underline it three times. Um, So that um, he is trying to do what he did in 2016. um, And I don't think it's working thus far for him. And Joe Biden is not having to do as much as a traditional candidate might uh, because of the pandemic. So that there are many, many variables. uh, And I don't think about 78 days out that we know uh, exactly where we're going.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And as Hillary Clinton pointed out last week, uh, you can win by three million votes and still lose the election.
2: Someone has already said that uh, Donald Trump could lose by five million votes and still win the electoral college. Now that might be uh, pushing the uh, envelope, but uh, it's out there from a political scientist.
1: Uh, David, I want to come to you now, Uh, and the interesting thing, well, there's going to be a lot, as Bob was saying, that'll be different about this Republican convention this week. One thing that's different, um, they're not adopting a, a policy platform of any new policies. It's basically... A referendum on Donald Trump and four more years of Make America Great Again. Does that mean there's going to be lots of diplomats in Washington kind of crossing all their diplomatic fingers and toes, uh, hoping for a democratic victory because of the White House's hostility to Europe and, if you like, traditional diplomacy, traditional alliances?
3: Yeah,
4: I, I don't think Many of America's allies will be disappointed if President Trump loses. Uh, This has been an extremely difficult four years. Uh, I think on almost every level, whether that is the multilateral with the Paris Agreement or the Iran deal, whether that has been in terms of bilateral relations where this administration has managed to offend just about every ally the US has. Uh, I think people desperately hope for a change of administration. I think that's fairly clear. There will not be too many people who will be cheering for for Mr. Trump. Um, But I think people are uh, wary of assuming uh, a change of administration. I mean, I agree entirely with with what Bob has said. Um, A lot can happen. And I think one of the things that should be said is the national polls don't really tell you very much because this is with the electoral college this is more like 50 state elections than it is with a single national election so you have to look very closely at what is happening in each of the states and at that level it's still looking pretty good for uh, president vice president biden but uh, you know a lot can change it will depend on turnout uh, which turnout where voter suppression uh, the efforts to discourage uh, certain groups from from coming to the, to the, to the polls. And I, I think, going back to your point, Anne, about the platform, I think Mr. Trump is going to go back to a very simple message aimed at uh, three groups of people. The first is his base, whom he stirs up with sort of xenophobic, racist, uh, hatred messages and, and fear of immigrants and so forth. The second will be on the economy, where he's going to say, look, In spite of COVID, in spite of all that, uh, I ran a good uh, economic ship. It was deregulation, it was tax breaks for the better off. And he will go with the evangelical vote on a conservative social agenda. And he will emphasize the fact that there could be a number of Supreme Court places to be filled. And what he's basically going to say to people is, okay, maybe, I mean, he won't say this in this way. You don't like me, maybe. But the alternative is you put the Democrats in power and uh, you change uh, all of that you just give them the power to decide the supreme court you give them the power to overregulate and stifle the economy in the way that they have in the past uh, and of course they will pursue a liberal uh, agenda of op- open borders and so forth that will be his simple message and that will resonate with different groups of people uh, even if they don't particularly like him so i i think if the election were held today uh, Mr. Mr. Biden would certainly win uh, 70, 70 odd days from now, a lot can happen and people can can change their minds or, or, or be persuaded uh, that in the end they they go with the party they 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 feel will deliver the best for them rather than the individual. And for many that could still be the Republican Party.
1: And while we don't know what's ahead, it certainly promises to be um, a roller coaster. And just picking up on that theme there, David, about the election and and what kind of election it's going to be in the middle of a pandemic. Carlin, last week we saw former President Obama appealing to voters uh, in his scathing remarks about Donald Trump. Uh, Do not let them take away your democracy. We have the post office chaos. We have the White House campaign against mail-in voting, even though COVID-19 is raging. We have the questioning of the outcomes. So how likely is it um, that we're going to see a free and fair election in November, in your view?
3: Oh, gosh, a a very good question. And I mean, I I grew up, the first president that I remember would would have been the death of uh, uh, JFK. The first president I remember really clearly, though, would be Nixon and um, the two elections for Nixon. And right now, this seems even more chaotic and um, and a very threatening point in history to democracy than under Nixon and the protests then, um, and the invocation of state forces against demonstrators and, and all of that. Um, from my own, you know, area of interest in tech, I think it's been very interesting to watch the manipulation that we've been seeing of the, the um, where even a Republican-led um, Senate report on re- um, election interference seems to agree that there was Russian election interference in 2016, and we're all expecting it in 2020 as well, perhaps from China as well. I know my distinguished panelists probably have more insight into those sort of um, global resonances than I do, but um, we've seen the kind of manipulation on social media that I think is seriously threatening to democracy and a very, very delayed uh, response from the big social media companies. And uh, I'm not sure whether it's too little, too late at this point. And but although we have begun to see some actions taken, which may make for a slightly more level playing field, but I, I would really be worried about voter suppression. I was during the 2016 election, um, joined in some uh, different forum discussions where voters, um, were posting in the South, were posting in from small towns that they were getting militia threats, that if the Democrats came out to vote, that they would have the armed militia guys would be at the poll stations watching which of them showed up. And so I think a lot of this was happening kind of below the surface and maybe wasn't picked up more generally across the media or um, awareness, but it would certainly seem that the same kind of, concerns and underhanded plays for power um, that were there both internationally and nationally trying to affect the U.S. election are going to be there over the coming months as well and on election day. And and I think a lot of us are worried what happens after election day as well.
1: We'll talk about all. There's another all of that in more more detail in a moment. There's another weak point, isn't it? Isn't there as well, which could uh, sow confusion in terms of um, the election machines themselves. They're a weak point on election day to hacking and malign actors. Actors,
3: aren't they? Yes, and this is a really interesting point because um, the re- voting machines are have always been vulnerable in various ways to being accessed, even if they're not directly linked to the internet. There's been, because it's not just the machines themselves, it's the voter records. We know that there were attempted break-ins and some successful break-ins to obtain voter information during 2016. Um, And so then you can start to manipulate voter registrations or Deregistered people when they show up at at, um, at polling stations. There's a, there's a lot of sophistication in, I think, in the um, planning that may be going on behind this because it's at it's international actors behind a lot of this, um, and ironically, I think for all that Donald Trump complains about the risks of email voting and people signing the back of envelopes and sending in ballots, even though he seemed quite happy to do this, of course, in his um, absentee vote for the Florida election. Um, Paper ballots mailed in are probably far safer than manipulations that can happen with voting machines or accessing databases in uh, local or state uh, or federal voting record. Databases, you know. So, so I would think if the, the sooner everybody got to uh, to email voting, would you know the probably the safer democracy is.
1: Um, Desmond, uh, as Bob was saying earlier, um, Donald Trump is unprecedented, and underlined that three times. Now, given the way he's upended all the traditional norms of government. Um, Just your assessment as we head into the election on the effect the Trump presidency has had, before we talk about all the campaigns and everything, on America's ability just to govern itself. Do you know what I mean? What impact has he had, do you think, just so far since 2016?
5: I think he's had an enormous impact and um, uh, America was already quite dysfunctional in 2016. If you remember the last six years, the Obama presidency, really nothing was passed because the Republicans wouldn't cooperate with the the Obama White House. Uh, For instance, they they left a vacancy of the Supreme Court lying around for 14 to 16 months, which was unprecedented. Uh, But all of this has got much worse uh, in the current period. Uh, Trump, I think, is froth and the outcome of these longer processes of polarization between the parties, the deep, black-white um, racial divide in America, which has which seemed to be diminishing in the 70s and 80s, but is now is back with a bang and is probably the most important dimension in the country. But it's if you want to look at what Trump has done, he's re- I think the single way to think about it is that he's revealed how much of the constitution and governing relies on norms, not on hard and fast rules. So he has argued that the Constitution vests unique power in him as the executive, as the head of the um, federal government uh, and of the executive. And that, of course, is a point disputed by constitutional lawyers and scholars, uh, just how much power under what's called the theory of the unitary executive does the president uh, hold and is able to exercise. Um, And he spent a lot of time, he's done it even again today or yesterday in his press conference yesterday, talking about this new. Um, treatment he's got the FA FDA to agree to against coronavirus he's talked about the deep state trying to stop this and he's thrown around this term deep state for some time Um, to put it crudely we could talk about the executive the White House aligned with the Department of Justice as considering themselves an executive with distinct and unique powers whereas he describes Congress and particularly the bureaucracy as a, a deep state which is not cooperating with the things that he wants. So there's no interest in checks and balances, there's no interest in following uh, norms um, or in respecting rules. Everything is an opportunity to get to get your particular interest, that is the president's interest, um, institutionalized and across in the system. It's done on total damage to the system. It's, it's done damage to the reputation of uh, experts. It's done damage to the reputation of the bureaucracy. And, and some of the bureaucrats have tried to come back on this. If you look at the way the, uh, the politics of the virus uh, response has um, unfolded, the only one who's been able to really hold his own position is Anthony Fushi, because he is, a, he is not an, an appointed official. He is a uh, career civil servant, uh, but but in the last two months he's been deliberately marginalised by the White House because they don't like what he's saying. Um, so I think the damage to the system is is really quite quite dramatic. Certain things that were already there, such as um, the ideological role of the court, the court really has no credibility at all as a, a an impartial, nonpartisan institution because of the appointments that have been made to it because of the sort of decisions that um, Roberts has been willing to preside over since Citizens United in 2010, and the two appointees that um, uh, Trump has put onto the court, of course, one in being uh, nominated in in deep circumstances of deep controversy, um, have carried on the tradition that this is a court which is ideologically uh, driven in its decisions, Um, and a lot of them support a strong president. That's more than you probably want to hear, but I, but I think, but I think that you've put your finger on something, and it is that it is the collapse of norms. A lot of things that were considered norms. If you're asked to appear before Congress, you appear. People have disregarded that rule. Um, uh, the it's the Congress, which is a constitutional rule, deals with um, uh, budgetary matters. The president has tried to exercise his own powers in those areas.
1: And there's a question I was wondering about today, Uh, maybe each of you briefly on this, Uh, before we talk about 2020, um, the argument about why the Democrats lost in 2016, they were too elitist, they were too urban, uh, they forgot middle America. Given everything you've all described about the past four years and the way all the norms have been upended and the way the Black Lives Matter have spilled, protests have spilled out onto the streets, dreadful incidents of police, brutality being recorded and traveling around the world. Um, What was was 2016 all about? Was it actually all about race?
2: No, uh, not on 2016. Uh, I would argue that um, uh, the Democrats, and I mentioned this at the opening, uh, the Democrats had a candidate who was roundly disliked. And uh, I would know that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are quite admired in Ireland. Uh, But over here at that time and the way that she was being portrayed, um, the people looked at both of the candidates, both of whom seemed unlikable to many of them, and decided, well, we'll take a flyer on Donald Trump. Uh, because we really, really don't want to uh, have another Clinton in the White House. The one thing I would say that is fascinating to study is the way that Hillary Clinton, when she left the State Department, her approval rating was in the mid-60s. During the years that she was out of uh, the State Department and then during the campaign, the Republicans made such an effort to demonize her uh, that uh, I think some of the results in some of the key states were determined by that effort. So that uh, did race play a part? Yes, but uh, let's face it, she didn't campaign at all in Wisconsin and lost by a few votes. Didn't spend enough time in Michigan, lost that state. Uh, Donald Trump won the presidency by winning 78,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. That is the system that exists in this country. He played it uh, like a violin. Whether he could do that again, I'm not sure.
1: Desmond, do you want to respond to that? Why Why did you say all American elections are about race?
5: Yeah, well, we could see that with the subsequent um, uh, policies that, ra- that uh, Trump has mobilized. In the four years before he won the election in 2016, he organized the Bertha movement against Obama. Uh, he was helped by the Tea Party movement, which is an exclusively white grassroots anti-government movement who hated Obama being in the White House. Um, the people who didn't turn out for Hillary included an awful lot of African-Americans who were very concerned about how she would respond. To her, to her being in the president in the in the White House, um, I entirely. But I mean, the Electoral College is exactly right thing to identify. But what I think Bob is overlooking is that the American system was designed at its founding to maintain and ensure enslavement continued. It did three things: it gave bizarre uh, representation in the Senate, two senators per state regardless of population size. It introduced the Electoral College, which, as uh, David described it as really a, a means of an election in every state, and national polls are pretty useless for us in understanding what's going to happen. And thirdly, it, it gave a Supreme Court with um, life tenure, which is unique in advanced democracies. It makes di- uh, change in Congress extremely difficult. It has the most veto points of any political system in the OECD. The consequences that um, uh, a system designed to ensure that uh, enslavement would continue was not able to cope with that when when the Civil War blew it apart, and that was replaced then by deep segregation, which is still with us. Which is why Black Lives Matters has arisen. Um, and that and colleagues don't want to recognise this, but that's how the institutional system was designed. How else can you justify the Electoral College as a system, other than to? that that it was intended to maintain a system of exclusion. The the white protectionist rhetoric, language and practices of the Trump administration have just exploded. Uh, This is part of why Black Lives Matter has blown up in the middle of the worst public health crisis we had in a century. Um, People just cannot survive in this system anymore around this basis. So um, uh, I'm afraid, I just think it's so deep and so profound uh, that we have to start with that at the beginning, it's, it's not really news, I think, and I fully understand and respect that people want to talk about the, um, uh, the individual and the personality factors and so forth in 2016, what difference they may or may have not made, but one thing we learned in 2016, for instance, which I think is very germane to this election, is that a lot of white voters don't answer opinion polls honestly. They don't wish to say that they're going to vote for the candidate for whom they do vote. That is the Republican in this case, because of his misogynistic and racist views that he expressed in that period. So we really don't have reliable opinion polls. My African-American friends stress this to me over and over again. These polls are not reliable, they said. And I so, and we have two pieces of evidence, one which go either way. The 2016 midterm elections certainly suggests Trump is unpopular and that the Democrats should be seizing the moment. And I think this is Biden's election to lose. However, we have seen no movement within the, Democrat, within the Republican Party away from this president, who is now palpably uh, unpopular and dem- demonstrably uh, incompetent in responding to the uh, virus. We have no senior Republicans saying they are going to dissociate themselves from him. That's, that's quite remarkable. <laughs>
1: And picking up on that point about it being Biden's election to lose in 2020, um, David, the Democratic campaign we saw last week, Joe Biden, he's selling himself as a healer. He's selling himself as the leader of a coalition of uh, broad talent right across the party and even the left wing of the Democratic Party that never really accepted Hillary Clinton. uh, They seem to be buying into the Biden campaign so far. My question is, the chances of success? And can this coalition of unity uh, in the Democrats against Donald Trump last uh, the next two and a half months?
4: Well, if I may just come back to the the previous question, uh, I I agree with a lot of what was said, particularly Bob. uh, But I think one element which for me was there was an element, uh, I mean, and and Hillary Clinton was not a great candidate, let's be frank. Uh, She probably would have been a much better president than she was a candidate if she had been elected. Uh, but there was also an element of misogyny. And uh, I was very struck by a number of people I spoke to uh, across America who kind of expressed the conviction that maybe, you know, it, the presidency isn't really for a woman. And some of this actually came from women. So I think that factor was also in the mix. I mean, everything else that's been mentioned uh, it was was important, but I think there the was an element there, and, and I was surprised at the, the number of educated women who voted for Trump. I, I think... Uh, um, Bob or Desmond may have the figure, I, I seem to remember a figure of 53% of college-educated women voted for Trump, white college-educated women voted for Trump, which given his misogyny, which Desmond has just mentioned, and his outrageous comments about women, I, I frankly could never understand. And, and yet it, it was, I believe, for the reasons I mentioned earlier about uh, a social conservative agenda, uh, it was about the perhaps economic agenda, or just a dislike of all things democratic. But uh, so these factors are there that that we we don't really know now. Can the Democrats keep it together? I think the key for the Democrats is to get the turnout. Uh, I think it's clear that in twenty sixteen the African American community in particular did not turn out for Hillary in the way they had uh, for Obama. By the way, they didn't turn out for Obama in twenty twelve in the way that they they had in in two thousand and eight, which is one of the reasons why they the Democrats then lost control of Congress. Um, the key is also to keep to keep on message and to uh, avoid that Trump manages to change the narrative, which is what he normally very successful at doing. I believe they can do it. I mean, I, I think it is uh, there is a degree of unity. And where I would slightly disagree with Desmond, I, I think one of the things that I have noticed is actually a growing number of prominent enough Republicans uh, starting to distance from Trump. You had John Kasich, uh, who was a potential Democrat, uh, Republican contender at one point, at, openly speaking at the Democratic Convention. You had Charlie Dent, a uh, former Republican congressman coming out. You've had that letter in the Wall Street Journal from 30 or 40 prominent uh, National security experts who worked for Republican presidents—not just saying they, they 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 don't like Trump, but actively saying they believe it's in the national interest to vote for Biden. So I think there is some split in the in the monolith of Republicanism that has until now. Uh, allowed Trump to, to run the agenda. And I think there is some evidence that some of them are going to turn away and really feel it's the patriotic duty, however much they may dislike it, is to vote for the Democrats. But the the, the the trick, of course, is that the Democrats don't split, don't provide Trump with the easy allegation that they're all socialists, raving lefties who are going to uh, have big government everywhere, because that is, that is how he will try to characterize this combination of Biden and, and Kamala Harris.
1: And Carlin, we've seen, you you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this new intake of Democrats, this talk about, Donald Trump is already talking about the left wing Democrats. So again, this coalition, its capacity to deliver, you know, women's vote, the black vote on election day, and its capacity to to stick to a policy platform that's going to survive the kinds of attacks uh, that will
3: be coming over the next couple of months. Gosh, a good, another good, a really important issue. I it, it always seems to me like the left is more easily split on these. Um, this is always the problem between the right and the left, isn't it? And you see it in the UK as well, as the left gets easily split over um, small elements of policy and um, and doctrine and perspective and ref- and then on the right you'll have this unity that where the goal is as we see with the republicans now just align behind the individual who brings the party back into power and the i I think I've been personally I've been quite encouraged I think in the rallying of the democrats around Biden since he emerged as the main candidate and um i th- and I was really hoping he would choose Kamala Harris. I mean, I'm a Californian. I'm familiar with her as a previous um, attorney general for the state, as well as um, representing San Francisco as attorney and then um, states or the state senator, not state senator to the state agenda, a national senator representing California to the, at the federal level. Um, I think she, she introduces a re- very interesting element I think in um, in, in uni- unifying a lot of those disparate strands and perhaps as a counter to some of the issues that have been um, rightly raised by other panelists on um, on race uh, racism divisiveness um, and having a woman candidate I was really interested um, to see that people seem to rally around her. And not be viewing her just in terms of her being a woman, but in terms of her capabilities. And it's quite different, I feel, than than the way um, people responded to Hillary Clinton. I, I really felt after the last election that there was a large element of misogyny in um, in Clinton not being elected, even though she did win the win the popular vote, of course. But now I, and and I absolutely agree that there's a a huge element where a huge race related element to the entire US system and to how people are thinking right now about whether they'll come out to vote and whether the system represents them and whether they're eternally locked out. And I know um, the, we tend to think of these voting blocks as being happy now because you say had a black president in office, but I know there was a lot of disillusionment um, voiced across the black community in Obama, not delivering on, um, on issues that were important to black voters. Of course, he faced a an impossible situation with a Republican Congress that wouldn't support him in any way as well. But, um, Oof, will all these different threads be able to unify and, and produce a, 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 a democratic president in November? I certainly hope so. That would be my my own hope. But there are all there, there are these quite um, disparate uh, threads of uh, of, uh, of democratic perspective across the party. I suppose there. You know, on the other hand. We had the Tea Party Republicans, you know, which who have gone very mainstream now, and they were once, you know, when I was younger, seen as so out there and on the very edge that they couldn't possibly gain more than a slight toehold of disillusioned voters, and yet they've come to represent, a, you know, quite a mainstream view of um, of Republicanism as well. So I guess we'll have to wait to November to see.
1: And the other thing we'll be waiting to see in November, uh, maybe Bob Schmuel, you'd come in on this, is uh, it's not just the presidency, of course. There are a number of key Senate seats up for grabs. And unless the Democrats win those, I mean, Biden's just going to be held hostage, won't he, by the Republican majority in the Senate. So how critical is all of that and what's going on there?
2: Very critical. But uh, one always has to point out that... uh, Donald Trump cares about one thing and one thing only, and that is Donald Trump. If um, the Guinness World Records had a category in egomania, he'd retire the uh, competition. Um, And what's interesting is that uh, they have been so supportive. He, He keeps saying 95%, 98%, whatever. It's usually closer to 88 or or 85 to 88 to 90% of Republicans who support him. Uh, they are, have supported him, but now they're looking over their shoulder because in all of his talk about uh, mail-in voting and the fraudulent nature that uh, that we could see in all of the mail-in voting, in a number of those uh, states where you have, uh, Incumbent Republican senators running for reelection—they have mail-in voting to an extensive degree, and they rely on that. So they don't want him poisoning the water uh, for their voters, keeping them away uh, from uh, from voting. But um, again, his his whole uh, manner. And philosophy, that's too strong a word for him. Uh, All he cares about is himself. And uh, I think when you look at the list of people speaking at the Republican convention, of course, all of his adult children, his wife, um, one could go on in that vein, uh, but very few of the strong uh, leaders in the, uh, the Republican party. So they think they want him, they think they need him, but he'll cut them off at the knees if he has the chance.
1: I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about the future of the Republican Party in a minute, but just sticking with the question of of the campaigns, uh, the Senate races in particular. uh, Desmond, just on that, how critical uh, are those races going to be to the capacity you know, we've spoken about how disappointed people were with Obama in 2012, and the capacity of Biden to deliver uh, to this coalition that he's brought together in this campaign.
5: That's a great question. I mean, they're going to be bitterly disappointed uh, if he faces a Republican Senate that's led by the same bunch of people like Mitch McConnell um, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, so, if the if the Democrats, and I think the Democrats, if if the polls are accurate. And, and uh, if they're accurate about the state level, uh, and if they're accurate about the national level leads that uh, Biden has, then I think there's a reasonable chance of a democratic uh, Senate. And they should certainly hold on to the, um, uh, the House. Uh, but if if they don't get that level uh, of, if they don't get a majority in the Senate, then I think it's going to be extremely frustrating because there will be no, the, the policies that Biden has set out, you know, massive reform of childcare, serious financial um, regulatory reform, um, changing trade policy to be more cooperative with, Cully, with allies, moving back towards multilateralism, um, thinking about the sorts of changes which uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren want in the, um, uh, in the taxation system. None of those is going to succeed uh, if they um, don't have a majority in the Senate. So it's a very serious, very serious issue. that regard can I just add to as a footnote um, I I take David's points uh, which are very useful about the the break in the in the Republican ranks I I don't think I I think the national security advisors is a very significant thing for people like him and me who watch this closely it just doesn't really have any resonance at all in the um, uh, in the in the suburbs in the rural areas in the voting Uh, boots, it's how senior Republicans like Mitch McConnell, the the leader of the Senate, and Lindsey Graham, how they behave, how the members of his cabinet behave, um, and and how he deals with those who've left that really matters. And there's just been no break in the wall there. This is, after all, a president who who was brought into um, uh, impeachment proceedings and impeached by the House, obviously wasn't carried by the Senate, but he was impeached by the House. Um, he is, has six or seven colleagues around him who, who have gone to jail. Uh, it's an extraordinary record for a presidency. It does echo the, the Nixon years, as Carl as was saying earlier, um, but, but this doesn't seem to resonate. The, we're, we are in this remarkable era of um, disinformation, fake news, inaccuracy which means that um, events which which I think level-headed people can say constitute serious constitutional challenges just don't get that kind of um, uh, traction in, uh, amongst the voters.
1: And of course, this year, as ever, the debates are going to be critical. Uh, David, we know that Joe Biden can be gaff prone There's that famous remark of Barack Obama's, never underestimate uh, Joe Biden's chances of bleeping things up. Um, how critical the debates and how um, how likely that Biden will score the wins he needs to in those debates?
4: Well, it's going to be a test for him. Um, I think many people actually think he is the right person to go up against someone like Trump because he, he is a classic retail uh, politician. Um, yes, he is prone to gaffes. He's prone sometimes to speak for too long. Um, uh, or to repeat himself. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting contest. I mean, I, I, the debates, it's always hard to say how really important they are. Um, they they have a certain influence, I think, but they're, they're rarely decisive. Um, but it is true, we haven't mentioned this, but I mean, Joe Biden also has vulnerabilities as, as a candidate. Uh, he's not... He's not the perfect candidate, or maybe he would have been a few years ago. He's he's older. Uh, he's going to be older than President Reagan was when he retired. Uh, he seems in good shape. Uh, we've seen videos of him running around the White House, uh, uh, and he seems he seems, thank thank goodness, in 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 fit and well. But this is something that uh, even the the equally not in the first flush of youth, Donald Trump will will try to play up. Um, and, you know, it's very easy, as we know, on the campaign trail to make a slip. Uh, um, Edwin Muskie famously, uh, others have, have have had that kind of difficulty. This is perhaps to Biden's advantage that he's not going to be out on the trail in the way you are in a traditional uh, pre-COVID election. So in in that sense, not only does the uh, pandemic to a certain extent help him politically, but it may also help him in terms of the nature of the campaign, which will not be big rallies, not the, the the relentless pace of of jetting around from one state to another, which you know for anyone who gets a bit older must must be harder to do than when you're in your mid 40s. So I I, I think uh, this is what Trump is going to try and uh, do. He's going to try and plant in people's minds that that. Biden has vulnerabilities, do you really want to put this man in charge of the country? Um, but I think he will go much more on the labelling him with Kamala Harris. Uh, and I agree with Caroline. I think she's a great choice. I must admit, I was disappointed she didn't do better in the Democratic primaries. I thought she could have been the candidate. Um, but uh, she didn't perform well there, by the way. and we have to bear that in mind but he will try to label the, the two of them as excessively left wing pro liberal uh, all the all the epithets that he will he will throw at them and i think that's where he's going to there's going to be a lot of, of negative campaigning uh, it's 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 going to be a very dirty campaign i'm sure
1: and Carlin, there's also the the chance of already people are talking about an October surprise, perhaps in terms of a vaccine announcement. We saw the impact in twenty sixteen of uh the you know, Hillary's emails at a critical late stage in the in the campaign. Um so it it's promising in those final critical days, isn't it, to be quite a roller coaster.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can already see um, Trump grasping at various distraction techniques, even um, claiming that we have a breakthrough treatment now in using um, uh, COVID antibodies as if this is he was saying what it's a game changer, even though this has been floating around as a, a prospective treatment for a while and there's still kind of so-so evidence on it actually because it hasn't gone to peer-reviewed trials. But of course, this doesn't matter in a um, a Trump world as he's, he seems to be claiming it almost as if it's, a uh, you know, he, he clearly wants people to look ahead and think that this is all going to be over with. Um, and you can see him gunning up to make an announcement that there will be a vaccine. So therefore, we saw this very senior person in the CDC, I believe it was, saying that who's in charge of the vaccine um, area and the um, granting the the, the approval process, saying that if the White House approves a vaccine for use, which it can do under um, emergency powers that it has, um, that he will resign. You know, I mean, this, it's, it all fits in with this whole chaotic Trump. Um, universe that his followers seem to really enjoy, but um, for the rest of us, it's endlessly terrifying, I think, and and exhausting day-to-day Exhausting. So I would think, yeah, something is probably going to pop up in October, and I would suspect it will be a um, a vaccine that is touted as a the saving grace. But I really think he, you know, we haven't really discussed the impact of the virus, the likely what where we will likely be by the point of the election, which um, you know, things if things happen to improve, good. I think it's going to be very hard for Trump to make an argument that he is. leading the US towards a better place in managing this virus. I think, you know, the polls show very few Americans um, believe his claims that he's doing the absolute best management of anywhere in the world um, as he disparages other countries for like New Zealand for having 12 new cases on a day when they had 39,000 new cases in the US last week. Um, but reality just doesn't impinge on the presentation of, um, of of the world ahead, as far as he's concerned. Um, but if if we end up in a place where cases are rising, um, winter's coming in, the, there's a, a big anti-vaccine uh, uh, body in of people in the U.S. who won't be getting a flu vaccine as usual. Um, coming into a season in which you have COVID as a complication, for example, you could see this overwhelm the hospital systems. We don't really know what's gonna happen with schools. We have all these states that have been reopening, even with extremely high level um, infection rates, way above what we would have here. And um, rising case numbers, and if you're looking at the, delay that you tend to see with deaths following in the rise in cases of being maybe four to eight weeks out. I mean, it could be quite a difficult argument for him to make that he's showing the leadership in this area at exactly the point when Americans will be going to a referendum on his actions in precisely that area. <sighs>
1: On the other hand you could also foresee a scenario Desmond in October couldn't you where on the one hand you've got Donald Trump saying make America great again my opponents are all dark Joe Biden he's going to put you back into a national lockdown if he gets his way so I mean that could be a choice that could sway some swing voters do you think?
5: I do I do yeah um and I know he I know Biden has said that if necessary they would have a national lockdown which they which of course they didn't have in the first place and that might have made it made a difference um, uh, but I yeah I mean it depends who's affected uh, where the outbreaks are um, and so forth I mean I I, th- I think Bob earlier mentioned the the di- issues of voting and and I don't think these should be underestimated the levels of voter suppression the difficulties there may be with um, Uh, getting to getting to the um, polling booths and there will there's likely to be far fewer polling booths they may not be open at the same for the same period as they have been previously because of the virus. So I think it's it's a very serious issue. I think there's also though, I think there's also a lot about turnout, Um, you know, we've got 21 million Americans are unemployed who weren't unemployed four months ago. not many of them are going to not all of them are going to get jobs back we're going into a a wave of real difficulty for a lot of americans um evictions are about to hit because the moratorium on um, landlords getting rents is coming to an end the uh, federal assistance program which was giving an extra uh, badly needed 600 a week to millions and millions of people uh, has stopped and um, president trump has has issued an executive order trying to replace this with emergency money disaster relief money but but it's not getting through yet to the local level um, the disruption to to um, schools that is secondary schools high schools and elementary schools uh, in some of the large cities is just immense um, los angeles san francisco children aren't really going to school they've and they don't have the um the backup at, um, at home that they need through um, um, computer and uh, internet linkages so there's a there's a lot of lot of sort of chaos, chaos there and if you think about it we've had a chaotic presidency for four years I mean every day consists of numerous tweets which brilliantly distract attention from uh, what's been going on um, against Trump the previous day and he sets a new agenda he finds a new target to attack um, he moves with 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 uh, adroitness uh, around these issues. So chaos is very good for him, and I think it's, it scares people. Keep in mind the image of those two middle-aged white lawyers in um, St. Louis coming out with their guns, brandishing um, against the BLM uh, marchers who were going through their area. Same as a private role. It was a r- Remarkable shot, and I think that conveys the sense of what a lot of these middle-class white voters feel. Um, and and they are the ones who will definitely get out to vote um, uh, in november's the others the others may not i think also the the debates um if i take anything from 2016 i think uh, trump was an incredibly successful debater and really wiped the floor with uh hillary in the debates in a number of ways Uh, he understands that these debates are entertainment his his is that he made reputation from doing a reality TV show. He knows that presidential debates are um, keen on getting high ratings. You get that by, by shock, and you get it by um, setting up strong positions. You don't get it from discussing policy details. And this is where Biden is likely to um, fall down. I think in the debates because he'll be trying to explain the detail of his is quite what is going to be a very complicated reform of healthcare policy. Um, and it's one that is that has been reduced to shorthand phrases like socialist medicine by Trump, and I think Trump will do, do well there. Uh, I think the vice president debates will be interesting, however, because Pence is a methodical, um, um, careful politician, whereas Camilla uh, Harris is, is also extremely forensic and impressive, and she did some brilliant jobs in the Senate, um, uh holding committee hearings and interviewing um or questioning particularly uh trump's first attorney general jeffrey sessions um that 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 was a set of questioning which uh, sessions will never forget uh in his period so so i think that we'll see the debates they'll be helping us with this with this chaos and so forth um I'm trying to get a get a level-headed view of where we are for the for the election in November. But there's a there's a there are so many um, uh, factors which can work on this randomly, I think that that it's difficult to be confident about what will happen.
1: Okay. Uh, before we talk about the Republicans, uh, one question, uh, which feel free all of you to come in on this, but Bob, maybe you'd kick it off. Who are, I mean, it's impossible to think that there's any undecided voters uh, in the American uh, polity at the moment, but uh, who are the swing voters in 2020 and what what will swing them?
2: It's a great question. And... Uh... I think if you look at the polling, uh, you have to look at the likely voters rather than the registered voters. Uh, so again, we're looking at polling, but you got to be careful in, uh, in doing so. You find roughly 8% uh, of the vote uh, that would call themselves undecided. Uh, there are some who think that that might be uh, a little high. Um, when you pull back and think about it, the amount of money that is gonna be spent over the next uh, few months uh, and all the effort and all the coverage that the media will give it, um, we're, we're looking at a fairly small, narrow uh, number of uh, of people. And I think what, what we haven't said, that we've talked a lot about uh, Donald Trump uh, but I would interject this. I already sense a desperation to him. Uh, you know, he's all full of brio and bravado. But um, just on Friday, he said the following, I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy, madness, and chaos. Uh, well, that's interesting. Um, a couple of weeks ago, he was pushing for a fourth debate. Now tell me about an incumbent president who wants an additional debate. As Desmond said, yes, he's the performer, he's the actor, he's the entertainer, uh, but he's trying to change the uh, uh, dynamics of this uh, campaign. So that, uh, who's he gonna have at the uh, convention? He's gonna have the two people from St. Louis who were brandishing those guns at the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters. Um I mean all of this is uh part of what is happening and I think part of what uh all of us should be aware of as we go forward.
1: Anyone else on the swing voters and um, I mean the the Republicans obviously Donald Trump already talking about the suburbs although uh, his idea of the suburbs seems to be something uh, from the 1950s Carlin
2: Suburban housewives <laughs> to be <laughs> Accurate <laughs> and precise, <laughs>
1: <laughs> with
3: their aprons on, obviously. <laughs> Carlin, right. The question being, who are the, the the swing voters on this one, or who are the the uncertain voters? Gosh, it's. You would think everybody would know exactly how they were going to vote in for this particular election. Um, everybody I talk to is is so polarized, but. I think what I learned from the 2016 election was a lot of the people that were, there were an awful lot of people who weren't actually revealing how they were gonna vote and you kind of assumed they were gonna vote one way and they voted, they generally broke for Trump. People who, People that I knew as Facebook friends, for example, and um, who posted right after the election, "Oh, I was—I'm so sick of the Obamas. I'm so sick of the Clintons. I just want change. I wasn't going to vote for um, Clintons again. I don't want these dynasties there." Which now seems kind of funny, since the Republicans are talking about lining up a Trump—a Trump dynasty of children leading on into the future who might be elected as the presidents decades on god forbid but um i think it's in in some ways it's it's um i think there i I certainly hope personally that there are republican voters who are planning to vote biden Simply because you know of the chaos that has been the result of the way they voted in the last election, um, I think um, the Lincoln Project, the Republicans for Biden group, which has just taken social media by storm with these brilliant commercials and sort of taken uh, the drama away from the Democrats' own campaigns because they do it so much better themselves, is is perhaps an indication of. Um, of there being a base of voters who may not be out claiming how they're gonna vote, but will swing towards Democrats. But but who knows? And I think it will come down to the, the you know who feels disenfranchised um, still and maybe wants to vote in a different way or who feels disenfranchised and wants more Trump because they don't feel they've achieved yet, you know, due to deep state blocking of the um, Trump's attempts to uh, bring in the, some of the policies that he said he was going to bring in. Um, I don't know. It's uh, um, everybody that I know. I think is 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 pretty firm on how they're going to vote. But then that would be the case with people who are um, interested in politics and uh, and feel like they have a strong stake in the coming election. A lot of people are in that middle ground where they're not quite sure. I just wanted to say too, I was thinking about one of the most striking things I heard in the 2016 election was I was sitting in the car one day and um, on RTE, somebody was interviewing a black woman in Louisiana on how she was gonna vote. And she said, I'm gonna vote for Trump because I don't know, I don't know anything about Hillary and I don't know what she stands for. And at least with Trump, I kind of know what he stands for. And I thought this is a, a, a black middle-aged woman feeling this way. And doesn't that say a lot about the kind of uncertainties in the American system and that um, in a reality TV era, that's also strongly dominated by how you control social media and how you, you um, how you demonize the mainstream media, as it's called, um, how that gives you control, that can be very hard to assess by those of us who sit and look at it through more traditional lenses.
1: And and David, what's your assessment? I mean, Carlin mentioned the Lincoln project. We've also seen there's Republican veterans against Trump. There's various um, anti-Trump conservative groups that have been uh, winning social media, but will they actually, what what's your assessment of their capacity to actually get you know switch Republican voters to voting for Joe Biden just to to end this uh, this particular time in American history uh, come election day? Can they deliver the vote, or is it an online phenomenon?
4: Well, this will be one of the, the big questions, and I I don't disagree with Desmond when he said you know that I hadn't drawn up a long line of prominent uh, Republican politicians who have dissociated themselves from Trump, but I think to this particular issue of who are the swing voters, to me, it's all down to turnout. Uh, And what you have to hope is that the Democrats will get more people out because they're mobilized to go for change. And the Republicans may get slightly less people out because some Republicans will may not want to vote for Biden, but they will not be able to bring themselves to vote for Trump. I mean, even John Bolton, not a man I have much respect for, has said he will not vote for, 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 for Trump. You also won't vote for Biden. So I don't know who he's going to vote for. But uh, that may be what could be decisive in this. If you just get a couple of percentage points of Republican voters deciding not to go to the polls, and you get a couple of percentage percentage points of Democrats turning out, that could be quite decisive in, in particularly in some of the the swing states. So, um, you know, I, I think turnout is going to be incredibly important, and traditionally, the higher turnout does benefit the Democrats and vice versa.
1: Look, you were there in Washington till, till 2019. So what's your explanation for the Republican base, which has loyally followed Trump through what we used to think was the Republican Party that we knew, to, you know, verging into QAnon territory and it's followed all the way?
4: I have no explanation, Anya. It completely defeats me. I could not understand it. I had many good friends on the Republican side who told me before the election, Trump was a charlatan, a disaster. Then once he won, they rallied behind him and they allowed this hostile takeover of the Republican party for which history will never forgive them in my view. It is a most remarkable uh, phenomenon of, of craven pursuit of power and prestige and money and influence and people basically sold their souls for that 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 is the only explanation i have i can give a more gentle explanation which is that they they said trump is evil trump is nasty but we can you know, we can get him to implement the right kind of policies which are good for the country. So socially conservative agenda. So we get conservative judges in the Supreme Court, less regulation, uh, more tax breaks for, for the better off uh, and being tougher on immigration and, and all of that. So, you know, you can say he had an, generally an agenda which they felt more comfortable with than the democratic agenda. But the fact remains at a certain moment, it's down to character, it's down to integrity. It's down to, as Desmond said, that the destruction of the, the, the norms of the American constitutional system. And so many have remained silent. And those that have had the courage like Jeff Flake or, 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 or Bob McCain. I mean, these people did come out and 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 speak it, but in the end, they were sidelined, and and they 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 had to retire from politics. Or, in the case of McCain, um, John McCain. Sorry, uh, he unfortunately passed away. But uh, th- there has been no concerted opposition to the takeover of the party. And uh, I've been. I was just reading over the holidays. Um, uh, Hillary Manton's Wolf Hall, the first of the trilogy of Henry VIII, and I was struck reading it in the debate about you know whether you supported the king in in what he wanted to do or not. Some of the similarities with what we witnessed with the Republican Party, which basically was we didn't want Trump, we thought he was the wrong choice, we think he's an evil man, uh, charlatan. But now that he's got the power, sorry, he's the power, and we have to we have to we have to follow what he says.
1: Bob schmoo what are your thoughts on the Republican Party and what has happened to it under a Trump presidency and where it's going?
2: It, it uh, is entirely different from what the Republican Party used to be in terms of, uh, you know, against uh, debt, against the uh, Soviets or the Russians, uh, as we would say now, just go down the the laundry list in terms of trade, in terms of immigration, so that uh, I agree they uh, really have sold themselves uh, out to someone. And what's striking is I wonder to what extent voters back in 2016. Uh, had the questions about Donald Trump answered by uh, Donald Trump. I was doing a little research the other day, and this is the last line of an uh, interview that he gave the Washington Post in, uh, published in April of 2016. My natural inclination is to win, Trump said, and after I win, I will be so presidential that you won't even recognize me. You'll be falling asleep. You'll be so bored. Well, um, I think an awful lot of people thought that Donald Trump would, uh, as happens with many presidents, uh, that having the office would transform him. He'd become serious. He'd become uh, the representative of the country. He would do the right things, and actually, the converse is true. He has tried to transform the presidency uh, in his image so that uh, he is the, uh, the center of attention. And the one name I, I don't think that we've heard uh, today is Mitt Romney uh, as being a high level Republican who uh, challenged uh, him. Um, But go down the line. Uh, Mitt Romney's not at the Republican convention. George W. Bush is not at the Republican convention. Um, So that they really have now, one hates to say it, but I will, sort of a cult of the personality. And they are so afraid of getting that tweet Uh, that would injure their reputation, but beyond their reputation, I'm not sure they care that much about reputation, but would jeopardize their power, uh, that they are willing to uh, really bow in uh, his direction and let him go uh, as he does. So that um, right now, if you look at the Republican Party, it is personified by the one person. I would argue that Mitch McConnell and others would be uh, afraid of that perception generally in the, uh, in the country, but it's going to take years for it to uh, get out of the system and for them to define themselves in a way that uh, is cogent and might have some relationship to its past and principles.
1: And Desmond, I've heard some people in the Lincoln Project, former Republicans, say they pretty much think the party is over, that it's going to go down the tubes with Trump, whether it's in 2020 or or, or 2024. Uh, Do you think that's what's what's going to happen? It's basically going to shrink with its base. What's its future? Who even leads it if he doesn't get elected?
5: Well, presidents... Yeah, leader, and you're quite right. When there isn't a, when the party doesn't have control the White House, then they tend to be fairly leaderless, or they have leaders, but they have no. The leaders don't have any public presence, chairs of the national uh, committees, and so forth. Um, I mean, we've seen the the U.S. system uh, can only operate with two parties. That's how the electoral system works. So I, it may shrink and contract. Uh, and reform, but to break up, I think would be um, unlikely in the short term. Um, I mean, this, I've just really enjoyed listening to my fellow panelists talk for the last few minutes because I think they've they they've really got a good sense of what's going on with with everything and and the the challenges that are that are ahead. Um, it's very hard for the um, senior members of the party to challenge the white house leadership so the speaker of the sorry the the leader of the senate um mcconnell the republican leader um and other senior uh, republicans there could could try to go and talk to the president um, and to talk sense and to try to say how do we cooperate but it his the trump Presidential style doesn't permit that sort of collaboration and cooperation. It just doesn't happen. If we think back to um, the Bush or Reagan, most recent Republican presidencies, they they would have had a much more collaborative approach to working with colleagues in Congress, uh, of both parties usually. Um, and um, President Trump obviously has absolutely no time for uh, Speaker Pelosi as the leader of the uh, of the Democrats in, in in the House in the Congress, so we th- so the, the the scale of non cooperation is quite staggering, and the scale the scale of um, um, inability to co- to discuss and to plan together is is really quite extraordinary. I, I, I think almost any other president that America has had faced with this sort of pandemic crisis would have would have at least paid lip service to the notion of national unity and national leadership and the scale of the crisis and the need to to cooperate and to work together. Instead, it's been the obverse in every respect is the the approach that's been taken. So that's what the inheritance will be. Um, I mean, it's it's very difficult to predict. I I hate trying to predict what's going to happen in the election, but it, it does seem to me there are at least you know, two or three possible outcomes. I mean, you were asking about swing voters, and the key voters, I think, are going to probably be white women uh, with college degrees. Um, Trump in 2016 won a polarity of um, white voters in every category, white voters, men, women, with degrees, without degrees, uh, old, young, suburban, rural. Um, so some of those have to, to break. Um, Ranks if he's going to lose, and they have that has to happen in key states. Um, it seems to be quite likely that we may not have a result on the evening of the election. That we will be left with um, uh, disputes and arguments about postal votes which have disappeared or not arrived, uh, ballot ballot uh, stations, balloting, uh, polling offices which didn't operate functionally correctly, and so forth. Um, and we may also then also uh, have um sizeable democratic successes in certain areas but not necessarily a clear result in the presidential election so there's, there's a there's a lot ahead there's a great deal ahead and i'm sorry that's veering away from your question about um uh, the republican party and where that will will go um trump has made it a party of white americans and evangelicals those are the two core groups, and they overlap because the Evangelicals are overwhelmingly white. Um, you, um, the, that is a group who have been brilliantly organized through the use of social media um, and the way in which algorithms work on uh, Facebook and elsewhere. They were used brilliantly in 2016. And in some ways that was the culmination of a strategy begun during the Reagan years when Reagan successfully brought religious voters, the religious right into the Republican fold. Um, and that has been expanded in the way in which social media operates means it's a very tightly knit groups. Um, and I think it's important to remember he's really delivered for this group. He's put uh, conservative anti-abortion uh, justices onto the Supreme Court. Um, we know that uh, one of the justices is very ill. Um, and I. If she were to die in the um, short uh, in the short term, then there would be another position even on the court. But he's he's not. Most presidents don't get get to put as many justices on the court as he's been able to do in a single term. And this is a big this is a big achievement. And he's done a lot uh, of other things for uh, religious voters who are a significant part of the U.S. Um, electorate, and they will stick with the Republican. party
1: but you do bring me actually very neatly to to, to another key question because Carlin, you, you know, you were talking about um, the things that could go wrong in terms of the campaigns, in terms of the vote. But picking up on that, we may not know what's going on on election night. It may take a number of days. It it may be disputed. So even if Joe Biden wins, you know, a very um, roller coaster campaign could be followed by a very um, bizarre couple of months if. Trump disputes the outcome, refuses to go, or his protesters come out on the streets against
3: the result? I, My sense is a lot of people feel that is what's going to happen um, if he... Especially if there's a a quite a close election, but I think you wonder what he'll do, even if it looks like it's a fairly clear Biden victory, and whether he you can see him again lining up the uh, sowing seeds of doubt and raising the issue of the deep state and the manipulation of ballots and who's actually doing the voting and um, the uh, you know the we've seen. Protest on the streets of a sort that uh, it hasn't been there since the Nixon years, really. And um, I would say both sides equally could turn out on the streets, and 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 God knows what would happen. I mean, it, it it just seems so bizarre to even discuss this as an American looking at what should be one of the, if not the world's leading democracy, um, democracies. And to be seriously considering a situation in which a president would not accept the results of an election is just so strange. But I think that's that's where we are. The the larger worry to me is that it the it's the Trump uh, supporting side which is the pro-gun side and tends to be armed as well. And we've already seen that those groups will turn out, be it on the steps of the Michigan um, uh, capital to protest. And um, in, in, in uh, uh, Charlotte, Charlottesburg, is that it's, it's the, um, they will show up, they will use violence, they will, um, be physically threatening, they will drive vehicles into protesters, And uh, you wonder what, what, you know, the fact that we've even seen discussion at the highest level of whether the military would support Trump if he refuses to leave the White House. I mean, it's just bizarre. You think that we're talking, we're talking in terms that in, in my lifetime to this point would have been reserved for the most unstable nations led by dictators across the world, not the, not the United States. And I certainly hope that's not what we come to, but, um, but I do feel the ground is being laid for exactly that to happen. And none of us know that's the nature of the Trump presidency is it is impossible to know what he will actually do when the day comes. And Bob Schmuhl, do you have similar concerns
1: about the interregnum?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm old enough to remember the 1960 election. I was small, but studious even then. Uh, Richard Nixon did not dispute the returns in Texas and Illinois. A lot of people told him that he should. Uh, but he thought, no, the presidency is too important to uh, have a cloud hanging over it. Certainly, Al Gore in 2000 um, could have done probably a little bit more, um, but didn't, and was gracious in uh, defeat. But um, Donald Trump, I mentioned this before, is sort of um, playing the desperation candidate already. Um, In Wisconsin last week, uh, he said, the only way we're gonna lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. So already he is saying that, he is not going to really accept the uh, results. And um, one can only imagine what, uh, what would happen. Um, recently, he said that he wanted to have uh, law enforcement uh, people at the polling places. Uh, Well, again, that raises uh, doubts, particularly among minority voters. Geez, is it something, do I wanna go and vote uh, under those uh, circumstances? So that at almost every point and almost every day, he is raising doubts about the results themselves. And um, he's been asked quite, Uh, openly uh, will you accept the results and he has said we'll see what we'll see what it's like at the time Uh, I'm not gonna say one way or another his press secretary the other day said uh, it's certainly up to the president to decide on accepting the results uh, or not this is not how Americans have conducted elections in the past and I'm back to that point about the unprecedented nature. Uh, that continues every single moment. Um, and um, we're just, we're just going to have to uh, see. I think, I think it's going to be open and for six weeks, let's say, uh, we're going to be talking about who actually won the American presidential race.
1: David O'Sullivan, uh, listening to all of you, um, there's a sense that this is all going to get a lot worse before it gets any better.
4: Well, um, I think it is a difficult moment uh, for America and therefore for the rest of us, because the influence and impact of of the US on the rest of the world is is so big. Um, The only thing we could hope for would be a very decisive Biden-Harris victory. I mean, one that was almost beyond dispute, and I, I would tend to agree that President Trump will probably dispute it, no matter how significant it is, but if it is one which genuinely is on a scale that is sort of makes Trump the clear loser, he can try to whip up uh, doubts about the legitimacy and so forth, but it will be difficult. Um, if it's more narrow. If it's contestable, if there are you know legitimate kind of questions about uh, how the votes went in certain states, whether all the mail-in votes and all of that, then I have no doubt that this president will use all the means at his disposal to create as much confusion uh, and 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 political chaos uh, as a means of trying to, to to cling to power. So yes, I I, I think. I think uh, this is going to be a a, a difficult campaign, a a difficult election and probably a difficult transition. Because I think what has changed in in America, a country I've known, I first went there and lived in California for a year in in, in 1961, the thing that has changed is the politics has very much become a winner-take-all politics. Um, The essence of democracy is not just the vote of the majority, it is the continued respect and rights of the minority. That's the deal of democracy. Uh, Of course, the peaceful transition of power, but it's always this sense that that, that a democracy has a majority and a minority and they respect each other and there are checks and balances. I think that has progressively been eroded uh, in the United States uh, to a feeling that you if you win you then you're got to take everything and it's it's a sort of scorched earth policy uh, and this has meant that it's the battle for who gets the power has become so much more fierce because there's no sense in which the loser can hope to get any get any mercy shown by the victor and i i think that is that is what is driving the deep divisiveness now th- this is part of the underlying divisions of American society. Desmond talked about the race issue, but there are uh, divisions between uh, urban and, and and rural. There are di- divisions between the West and, and, and the East, between the, 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 the North and the South. Um, I, I met several people during my extensive travels around the US who said to me, and I'm not talking about influential politician. I'm just talking about taxi drivers or people, hotel receptionists or people like that, who would say to me, you know, we wouldn't rule out that this country could see a civil war someday. Now, they were not talking about gray uniforms clashing with. Blue uniforms on, on the battlefields of, of Virginia. They were they were talking about civil unrest, they were talking about people with guns, uh, people feeling they had to take to the streets or or or, or use other means to, to assert their views. So there is this sense of the fragility. I'm a, a huge fan of the United States. I, I, I ultimately believe in the in the deep decency of the vast majority of American people. I think they will come through this, but I think there could be some very, very bumpy moments in the next in the next few months.
1: And in terms of that idea of America, you know, the shining city on the hill, the leader of the free world and the damage that's been done to it. I mean, overall Desmond King, you know, in a world where we have autocrats running, you know, the two other big global superpowers, China and Russia, um, how easy is it going to be to undo that damage? and reclaim that position, or, or or is it a good thing it's gone? It's a big question, but I'd love to hear you talk about it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, it's something I have been thinking about. Um, I certainly think a Biden presidency could rebuild some uh, key bridges, but I think there might be less um, change than we would expect. So he would obviously rejo- bring America back into the WHO, He would treat NATO as a with respect and as a serious organization and I think he would wish to use the UN and work with allies and policies. Quite how he deals with China um, and quite how he responds to China's expansion into Europe, into Africa, into everywhere um, and its use of technology is it seems to me much more complicated and uncertain. The um, Trump administration is building up quite a quite a nasty headache about Taiwan, um, which would have to be faced by a new administration where they're making overtures which can only be um, deeply threatening to, to China on that basis. Uh, and of course, I think a Biden administration might be likely to take a more serious line towards the uh towards Russia and to recognize it for the Sort of dangerous authoritarian state that it is, rather than pretending that it has a benign leader who doesn't. Think, and we had a vivid reminder We've had a vivid reminder in the last few days of just how um, dangerous that country is for um, politicians um, in those countries. But if you think that the Russia, uh, the US didn't respond in any way to Crimea, and it's not really responded substantially to Hong Kong. Uh, would a new administration be able to do more in respect, say to if Russia effectively takes over Belarus um, as a way of stopping it becoming um, a freer society? Uh, I think that's, that's going to be going to be very complicated. I, I suppose I'm being an old fashioned liberal and thinking that I agree with David that, um, that the sentiments of the US have historically been been better for democracy. And more democracy supporting than uh, than against that, and the sort of democratic tradition which Biden represents does seem to to fit into that. But the world has become is, is, has changed, where protectionism is is very much the norm. The anti globalization sentiment, which contributed to Brexit in Britain and to um, Trump in America, has not gone away, um, and that's going to change behaviours and futures. Um, all in the middle of a pandemic, uh, for which there's no obvious uh, solution uh, uh, around the corner. So, I think it, it will be it will be complicated and interesting to see to see what happens there. I think there will be. I, I, I think if Trump is reelected, um, there will be more of the same and the use the confusion between. National, the national interest and his own interests will will continue with a lot of um, complicated consequences from that. Um, but he but but he has pushed, or he hasn't really. But his the colleagues around him, like Peter Navarro, have pushed these questions about the influence of um, Chinese companies and Chinese trade uh, into the uh, onto the political agenda in a way which I think any new president will have to pick up and, and run with. Um, but the belligerence and the bellicose style that we have at the moment from the White House towards NATO allies, for instance, I think uh, would subside and that would be a good thing.
1: Yeah. And Bob Schmull, in terms of the damage to that whole idea of uh, America, and you know, the leader of the free world, the idea of the Statue of Liberty. Um, Your reaction now when you have columnists like Fintan O'Toole talking about how outsiders now look at the United States after four years of Trump with pity.
2: Yes, uh, and that was a column that uh, resonated over here and uh, got a lot of attention. Um, It really just shows the impact, the consequence of one person. Um, I would argue the damage that the one person could Uh, do Um, but it in a way relates to one of the earlier uh, questions which is you know where are the Republicans the Republicans in in recent years have become much more nativist and nationalistic and in 2016 he was the he was the certain trumpet of those people And uh, I would argue that they probably uh, don't mind what has happened uh, to America in terms of its perception abroad. Uh, Again, uh, remember, these are the so-called forgotten men and women. Uh, Most of them would not have uh, much interest in international affairs, wouldn't travel, wouldn't have passports, things, things like that. Um, I think it's huge. I think it's um, uh, terrible, uh, to use a word. Uh, I'll use a word that Donald Trump uses all the time, disgrace. Um, But um, he is uh, really speaking for more than himself in that. Um, What's remarkable, we've, we've touched on it but not probed it, Uh, deeply, uh, and that is we we keep talking about his, quote, base. Um, And uh, I don't think that the Republican convention is going to be an experience that reaches out to people beyond that base. So that his strategy for the rest of the fall, for the rest of this campaign, is going to be, can I find some more people? who are like-minded, who did not vote in 2016, to deepen that base. And uh, that is something that uh, I think all of us should be watching as, uh, as we go forward and get closer to November 3rd. Is he successful in deepening? Uh, because Lord knows he has not tried to broaden at all.
1: And even if he loses, Even if he accepts the result, Bob, and and leaves the White House, as David was pointing out, you know, he's still going to have a voice. He could set up his own TV station. He's still going to be playing a role in American politics. Maybe, you know, this is not going to be over for a long, long time. Trump politics. Uh, I
2: mean, uh, if you read the, um, you know, coverage, there are people who are saying already that if he loses and indeed leaves the, uh, the White House, uh, that he would be seriously thinking about running uh, in 2024. Um, he certainly has that uh, opportunity ahead of him, whether he would do it or not. Um, you know, There's talk, serious talk, that Don Jr. is the next person uh, who might be in line uh, to, do, uh, to take a uh, flyer on a uh, presidential campaign. Um, he will have a voice louder than anyone's, uh, and it will make, if there is a President Biden, it will make his life awful. Uh, I'm to the opinion, and I would be someone who would, uh, want to foster uh, coverage of the White House and all that? I think at a certain point, the American uh, media need to ask themselves: Should we always be covering his press conferences? Uh, should we always be giving him the uh, the coverage that he craves, the attention that he craves? Uh, I think that's something that uh, people who are in the high offices at the networks and at the uh, publications need to uh, ask themselves.
1: And Carlin, apparently at Fox News, they're really worried that, you know, they could be really hit if President Trump sets up his own TV station and attacks them from the right and comes at it from there. Uh, that Trump politics, as Bob was saying, you know, even if there's a Biden victory, even if they win the Senate, uh Trump politics could be with us for a long, long time to come in america
3: and and oh my God, how will we survive that um as as my mother, who was eighty five said she she has a group of friends who call themselves the widows group, and when they get to get- they used to get together for dinner regularly before uh the pandemic hit, of course. But she said their response in 2016 was, "My God, we don't want this to be the last president that we remember before we die." So, <laughs> to the idea of a continuing Trump dynasty, I think, would drive them all insane. Um, but um, as, as maybe centenarians, all um, seeing a, a Don Jr. In the, in the White House, but I think it's it's um, one thing maybe to look. For, ahead too, as we're talking about how Trump will change politics is I just like to say, you know, as a, and then of course, I've been speaking here this whole time more as a a voter and somebody interested in particular aspects of the Irish and I suppose Irish European experience too, uh, and American experience, sorry, and, and Irish and then European experience, because that's my been my own immigrant route over here, and I'm now an Irish and a a European citizen, as well as an American and Canadian citizen, um, is that if you look at the US right now, what we're talking about in terms of politics is uh, undoubtedly going to be a completely changed politics, I think, in the decades ahead, because you have a very young population that is now highly diverse, highly non-white, better educated, than ever before. And there a lot of these um, young people are the children of immigrants. And I think that's gonna be very transformative in American politics, including um, perhaps pushing many states that we've traditionally seen as red over to blue. And you know, a year when you have both Arizona and potentially Texas, even North Carolina, South Carolina in play, um, South Carolina to a, a lesser degree but North Carolina certainly. Um, You can see the changing populations in those states getting younger, getting more diverse, and those people um, show up in um, endless polls as being more likely to vote blue to vote Democrat. Um, And I also think you have a generation that's been um, galvanized into politics over um, climate change, for example, in a way that we haven't seen since the 1960s. And so I think there may be a lot of change ahead um, in different directions than where Trump has been taking us. And I also just was thinking too, as we were um, discussing this issue of what might happen post-election, depending on who comes in, the, um, I think Europe, faces some interesting questions now too, because if you lose the US as, a, as the global power, and and I think of, there's definitely been such a weakening, Finton is absolutely right in that, that sense of pity towards the US. Um, and some of that will probably be regained over time. Other bits of it have been lost and perhaps lost forever. Maybe it's um, China's century ahead. Um, But certainly it could be, there could be a much larger European role and it raises lots of interesting questions for Europe ahead on um, whether it becomes more federalized, um, you know, the the identity of individual nations, nation states versus the larger European project. And just as somebody who now sits and looks at that wider picture with a, a personal stake, I find that really fascinating too.
1: Okay, I'm not going to go uh, into the EU role, because I, at this stage, that I think that's probably a discussion for, for a whole uh, other day. Um, David, I want to ask you a question. Joe Biden's granny uh, told him that uh, the best part of his heritage is his Irish blood, just being really parochial. If we did get a Biden presidency, uh, would that be one where Dublin could hope to punch, continue to punch above its weight in Washington?
4: Yes, I, I, I think it. From an Irish, narrow Irish perspective, I, I think uh, Joe Biden's election to the presidency would, would confirm the good tradition of, of uh, pre- presidents with strong Irish roots. Uh, Joe Biden is very, very proud of his Irish heritage. Uh, likes to say he, he quoted Seamus Heaney in his, in his excellent speech uh, at the virtual convention, but he always likes to uh, entertain visiting dignitaries saying, I always quote Irish poets, not because I'm Irish, but because they're the best. So yes, I, I think uh, we will continue to have a, a, a influence way beyond our, our our economic and political weight. Um, of of course. course, you know it is it is an influence which is important, good for the country, um, but it tends to play more on Irish issues than to play on broader issues, um, if you see what I mean. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, the, the fact that the, the Taoiseach gets... Every Irish Taoiseach gets, you know, an hour in the White House uh, once a year is a remarkable achievement for a country like this. There are much bigger countries whose presidents who, or, or prime ministers would, would um, you know, cut off their right arm to 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 get a meeting once every two or three years with the American president. So this is this is a huge uh, attribute which the country has, and I've no doubt that Joe Biden will will uh, emphasise very much his Irish roots, and I'm I'm sure the government will be thinking of a way to get him to an early visit uh, to to Ireland. And so, yes, I I think from an Irish perspective, this would be uh, very, very good news indeed.
1: You've given us the one certain fact uh, we can hang on to in this discussion, in all our projections about what's going to uh, come up in the campaign and and afterwards, and and the impact of all of this, which is, uh, David, that a Biden presidency uh, would mean more Irish poetry in the White House. Uh, What else is in store for us, we just don't know. Uh, and it's going to be, um, it's going to continue to be fascinating um, and scary. I'd like to thank you all for being such a fantastic panel. There's so much more we could have gone into, but I just think uh, you gave us a fantastic overview. I really, really, really enjoyed it. So thank you all. And thank you to anyone who's going to be uh, watching this. And, and maybe we'll get to do this again. Uh, Just before or after the election it it could be another interesting time to talk about all of this but thank you all very much and my thanks also uh, to the royal irish academy uh, for putting this together so for now it's Sloan. thank you
0: to all of our guests this evening for this relevant and enlightening academy discourse in particular i wish to thank the secretary of the academy for organizing the uh, Academy discourse program. Our next Academy discourse will be Culture, Heritage, and Recent Armed Conflicts by International Cultural Heritage Expert, Dr. Munir Buchanaki. This discourse will take place on Thursday 29th of October, 2020 at 7 p.m. And the event will also take place online and all further information and booking details are available on the uh, royal irish academy website www.ria.ie thank you once again for being with us this evening thank you bye bye